Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Happy to have everybody here with us on Church and Chill Sunday. So um, one of the greatest joys and benefits of living in New York City is that any one of us can just hop on a train and go to see a Broadway show, really, in a matter of, of minutes. You still got to buy the ticket, but at least you can get there easily. I try to see a couple of shows a year, and... Every time I see a show, I don't know if you're, like the, if you're like me, every time I see a show, I have the same reaction every single time. I'm always like, yo, this is amazing. I should do this like every week. Um, because I'm so inspired by human bril the, the brilliance on display, and it's so profound and beautiful to look at, and the production is always so incredible and amazing, and it's really a, a joy and a, a special treat to live in New York City to be able to enjoy God's gifting uh, on display. But not everybody who's going to a Broadway show has the same experience when they leave. Not everybody's walking away feeling inspired and enthralled by what they just um, participated in. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast, and they talked about the experience of some people who worked in Broadway and weren't walking away feeling magical. That was about The Phantom of the Opera, uh, a show that actually just closed, but that show had been going on for 35 years, and it had entertained millions of people in the time that it was on. But specifically, the podcast wasn't even talking about the actors or the people on stage. It was talking about the orchestra and the people who played the soundtrack for the Phantom of the Opera album. So if you were to go to the, a show to see Phantom of the Opera, you would see the people um, on stage acting, and then there is this orchestra, men and women who are playing instruments, but they're, is that on stage? They're below the, um, the stage. And the podcast actually talked about people who had been playing for Phantom of the Opera for decades. Every single night, they'd be playing the same notes for the same show, and they talked about how maddening and really crazy it was to do the same thing over and over and over again. But even worse than the fact that they were doing the same thing over and over again, they were really, really disconnected from the show. Now, one of my favorite people from the podcast was a woman named Melanie Faust. Uh, she played an instrument for the orchestra for 28 years straight. She was in the pit below the stage, but she had never seen the show. So a couple of weeks before uh, the show ended, she actually asked her manager, like, yo, can I see this joint that I've been playing for for 28 years? <laughs> and uh, the manager uh, obliged, and she was sitting next to the sound booth for a show, and she talked about how completely enthralled and amazed she was. For almost three decades, she was right there. She was so close to the magic that was happening, but she wasn't able to see the beauty on display. She was Phantom of the Opera adjacent. <laughs> now, all of those years, she was doing a lot of disconnected things, finally started to make sense, now that she was seeing everything come together in one beautiful story. For her, it came 28 years too late, but she was finally able to appreciate all of the things that she had done over those years. Now, this got me thinking a lot when I was listening to the podcast. Um, I have been around church uh, my entire life, and I know a lot of Christians like Melanie Faust. They're really close to the story of the gospel. 
but they're caught in drudgery. They're not able to see the beauty of what the story is intended to communicate. All they're focused on are these little things below the stage, below the action, their behavior, whether or not they read their Bible for 15 minutes, whether you do this or that, and they miss out on the grand story of the gospel. And in doing so, they miss out on the beauty that's so close to them. And so my hope as we um, have really started this series on Galatians is that you and I would have moments where we are amazed by the story of God, the story of God that has been told for thousands of years in the church, the story of the gospel that is meant to inspire us and encourage us. And it's actually meant to change your life. You know, when I first became a Christian in college, my life was absolute drudgery. Um, I, I went to a Bible study on campus, and um, I got invited to this Bible study thinking there's going to be like 30 people there. And I realized when I got to the Bible study that I was the subject of the Bible study. <laughs> there was like five teachers and me. And I'll never forget just being so nervous to even be seen in a Bible study. Uh, I was talking to some friends a couple of weeks ago. You know, I, I, college for me, you know, and certainly early on in my college years, I was wilding out um, and did a lot of things I'm not really very proud of. And to even go to a Bible study for me felt like I was a hypocrite to even show up at its doors. So we get to this Bible study, and I'm already carrying around this guilt of all the things that I have done for high school and certainly my college career. I get to this Bible study, and it really does change my mind. It changes my life. I remember sitting there crying so much that I didn't want to go back to my dorm room because I, my eyes were swollen from crying for hours. And that day, I knew something in my life had changed. But that day probably marked a period in my life where I really did receive Jesus as my Lord. It took a little while for me to receive him as my Savior. I, those two terms can't really be split that neatly or evenly. Certainly, I was saying all the words that would have communicated that Jesus was my Lord and my Savior. I wanted to become a follower of his. I said all the prayers. I got baptized. I did all of the things. But I was still trying so hard to save myself. There was a piece of me that believed that I still had to work off all the garbage that I had done. So I spent my life in drudgery trying my very best to be a better Christian than I was a sinner on campus. So I was going wild hard on campus. And I really did turn into a pretty militant, graceless, miserable person. I was close to Jesus and the Bible and the things of Scripture, but I was missing out on the show. And so our hope as we do this series of Galatians is that we would get a fresh vision of the gospel, and it would remove it from drudgery to something that amazes us um, and really does um, produce power in our lives. And so really, last week we started off and we talked about a, different, a couple of different concepts. And if you were paying attention last week, you would have noticed um, I really did not want to give anybody a definition of what the gospel is. And really, I'm not going to give you one today either, because I don't necessarily want to give you a definition of something. I want us to be immersed in the gospel. It's one thing, I mean, last week we talked about this actually, that in some ways we're trying, I'm trying and we're hoping and our teaching team is praying that we just we develop a gospel fluency and that we start to speak the language of the gospel, not in a little definition that we can put on our desk at work, a quote that we can tweet, 
but that it becomes something that we are immersed in, and as a result, it permeates every crevice of our life. It permeates the way you work. It changes the way you work. It changes the way you parent. It changes the way you are a friend. It changes the way you serve or don't serve at church. That it would change comprehensively everything about you. And I don't want to reduce that just yet to a definition because I think I'd be doing us a little bit of a, a disservice. So last week we talked about two of the thieves uh, and two of the, the false things that people think about when they think about the gospel. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about what the gospel is not. Uh, and we said the gospel is not relativism or moralism. Relativism is the belief that says because we're saved, we don't have to be good. Right? Jesus died on the cross. He took away all our sins. I can't add anything to it. So if it's enough, then it's enough. I don't need to do anything. And I can basically do anything I want to because God loves me no matter what. And what that does is it really does cheapen the sacrifice of God's son going to the cross on our behalf. And we talked about a quote from Charles Spurgeon that said that if it's true that Jesus, God's son, went to the cross on our behalf and absorbed the wrath of God that was for us, and he took it and we get his righteousness, then how could we continue to trifle with the sin that killed our best friend? And what relativism does is it puts us in the camp of people that says, yes, Jesus died for my sin, and I'm going to continue to live like his death did not matter. And I think that's a, a version of cheap grace that I have lived in plenty of times before. But that's not the grace of God that we talk about when we're talking about the gospel. On the other side of uh, a thief of the gospel, of uh, what the gospel is not, is moralism. And moralism is the belief that we have to be good to be saved. That what Jesus did for you on the cross is a good start. But really how we complete that is by you being amazing and doing more than other people and being better and better and better. And moralism does not have to be just for religious people. There's a lot of people who do not go to church, believe in God, and are extremely moral moralist in their behavior and their understanding of God. Here's what they believe. If I do better, God loves me more. And that is the antithesis of the gospel because the Bible says in Romans 5 and 6, while we were still sinners, while, during, the duration of while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel pattern is that God gives his best to those who do not deserve it. Grace is always undeserved. And the second you try to make it something that you can earn or deserve, it cheapens it. And it's no longer grace. And it cheapens God as well. It makes God like your boss or your professor. And it will rob you of ever having intimacy with the Father if you are a moralist. Because you will only feel as loved as well as you have behaved in the last 24 hours of your day. You know, my kids are crazy. Um, that's the medical definition of their behavior. And there are, there are rough days. There are like some really rough days with the kids. There are some good days with the kids. Hopefully the good days outweigh the bad days. Um, and in both days, they're my kids. It would be like, I would be a terrible parent if you were like, oh, Jordan, how's a fam? I'm like, ah, we're not, we're not, you know, the kids, we kind of, we went our separate ways. They're like, what happened? Like, bedtime, man. Like, this weren't going to bed on time. Me being a decent father, you would say, Jordan, like, these are your kids. Like, you've, you've chosen to give them life. And as a, as a result, you are bound to them even if they are not behaving well. 
Scripture says, for those who God, um, for those, all who would receive him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And God is not a deadbeat dad. And so today, I really want us to move forward and continue to uh, deepen our understanding and experience with the gospel. I want to swim in in the deep end today a little bit with the gospel. Um, and I want us talking about how you see yourself and your story. So I want to read uh, verses 11 through 24 in Galatians 1. And it should be on the screens uh, to your right and left. And also, uh, you can feel free to pull it out on your phone or a paper Bible. Galatians is written by a man named Paul. Um, Paul started these churches in this region of Galatia. He is writing them to address some stuff that's going on. And here's what he says. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Then, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, also known as Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. Here's what I want you paying attention. They kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of, of me. You know, if you were to ask me, Jordan, like, what is the goal of your life? Or what should the goal of my life be? I would say the goal of your life, irrespective of your career, your degrees, where you're going on summer vacation, if you have kids, if you never have kids, uh, if you stay in New York forever, if you move, whatever accomplishments you achieve or don't, do not achieve, the goal of your life should be that at the end of your life story, people could see or read about your life and it would, they would glorify God because of the beauty of your story. This is what Paul is saying, that God was so much in the mix of his story, the gospel so permeated his life that people saw his life and they gave God glory. What's a higher honor for you? What would it be a greater sense of joy and accomplishment as you lay down to take your last breaths, that you lived a life so honorable that people would give God glory just for your life, not for the things you believed, not for the bank accounts you had, but for the life that you lived and for the beauty of your story. And so today, really, I want us focusing on this verse, and I, I want to talk about the beauty and the praiseworthiness of a life that has been changed and is being changed 
by God. Now, I don't know everybody in here today. I certainly don't want, know everybody watching o- online. But I, I bet that's all we want. We want a life that is changed by God. We want a life that is changed by God, and it's visible to other people that God has a hold of us. But I want us to know that God is the one writing your story, and God wants to write a better story than the ones that we are currently writing in our life. So our stories tend to have the wrong focus. The way that you think about your life and your story as um, you have come to know yourself, we tend to focus on the wrong things, or at least I certainly do. I tend to focus on um, my sins, my weaknesses, my wounds, and my damages. That if you were to spend some time around me, the thing that would come easiest to me for me to talk about are the things that are wrong with me. My sins, my weaknesses, my wounds, and my damages. Now, those things are, are true about your life, and I, I don't think it would do us uh, well to pretend like we don't have things in our life that we need to truly navigate through, sins and patterns and things that are ungodly, uh, the weaknesses that we have in our life, and we're going to break these down in just a second, the wounds that we have suffered, they, they matter, they impact us. The damages that you have accumulated over your, over your life, these things are serious. They're true, but they're, they're incomplete. Um, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe seven or eight years ago, I was bestowed with the greatest honor any black family can bestow to someone. I was given the yam duty um, on Thanksgiving. And yams had been something that was a hotly contested uh, position to, to run for. And the previous occupant of this seat lost the privilege to provide the sweet potatoes for the family because I don't know how many years it was, but one year she showed up, and she's not in this room, uh, she showed up with uh, yams from the can. Yes. And she just like laid them, she just like uncanned them, put them in like some Tupperware, put them in the oven, was like, all right, yams are done, everybody. And... Um, Like, people would just take a corner of the yam just to not be impolite. Like, technically, if you get down to the actual definition of what constitutes a yam, is that a yam? Yes. But it's incomplete. We got to throw some nutmeg, some brown sugar, dark and light brown sugar, some cinnamon. We got, you know what I'm saying? Marshmallows for those of y'all who do the marshmallows. But it has to be completed with something more flavorful, more full. And I think for us, our lives are like those yams right out of the can. It's true, the things about you, your sins, your weaknesses, your wounds, and your damages, they are true, but they're, they're incomplete. There is no gospel seasoning over your life. And without the gospel, it's, it's not something that I would recommend anybody else to consume. So what are the things that I'm talking about? Very briefly, um, sin. Sin is when we do something that is against the law of God. And when you and I um, miss the mark, there's a word in Scripture called hamartia, which basically is like an archery word, which there's a bullseye. There is a mark that God has set in his Scripture for our life, for what human flourishing looks like. And you and I extremely rarely hit that bullseye. And to go to the left or to the right of what God says is human flourishing and perfection and what God demands and commands his people to live like is what Scripture would call sin. But most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we would know, we would acknowledge that we fall short of the standard that God has set for people. 
Uh, we don't even follow our own standard for our own lives, let alone God's standard for our life. But we have some really nasty and not gospel-seasoned reactions to our sin. I'll just speak for myself. Uh, my responses tend to be covering, excuses, hiding, blaming, or my personal favorite, or my least personal favorite, is uh, shame. And I beat myself up that there is something broken and deficient and wrong with me that is irreparable. The problem is, Jesus does not respond to sin the way that you and I respond to our sin. The gospel response to sin is not condemnation and shame. or um, it is, It's Jesus. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He, God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So instead of the unhealthy response of, to, to our sin, to our falling short of shame and beating ourselves up or self-loathing, the gospel tells us to repent and to believe, to believe in the one that he has sent, as it says in John 6, and to believe in faith that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed you from your sins. In 1 John 4 and 9, one of my, oh, 1 and 9, excuse me, one of my favorite scriptures, it says that God is faithful and just if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just. He will forgive us from our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So the response is not self-loathing. It's not beating ourselves up. It's going to him knowing that God is faithful, and that's including him in the story, so we're not um, carrying it around. It's not just our sins, um, but it's our weaknesses. Now, here's something I want you to try on for size. Christians are too reductionistic. We're way too reductionistic. We think our lives, either it's wrong or it's right. But that's not the way the world works. There are some things about us that are just weaknesses. A weakness, an example of a weakness is that you are in a relationship with someone and they, uh, you're in a relationship with someone and you can see it a mile away, all of the deficiencies in their life, all of the inabilities that they have to show up for you in the way that you'd want them to show up for you. And if you were to interrogate and evaluate their past and how they grew up, you would see that they were never given the tools on how to navigate complex issues in life. It could be around money, it could be around relationships, whatever the issue is, but they just have never had the tools. So now, as a coming of age, they're trying to be an adult, they're trying to do these things, and they're not able to do it in the way that you want them to be able to do it because they're just weak. It's never been modeled for them. They've never done it. It's a muscle that they've never exercised, and now they're trying to do it, and they're just weak in doing it. Them not budgeting is not a sin. There is no scripture that says, thou shalt do Excel sheets. But if they don't handle money properly, it might be a weakness in their life. If they don't have the emotional strength and, and, and maturity to have difficult conversations, to hold space for people, to forgive, it might just be a weakness that God has not um, been, they have not been strengthened in just yet. And so our response to our weaknesses, again, is self-loathing and different things. But Jesus' response to our weaknesses is not to beat you up. You know, I love this one scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 14. It says this, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. How many of us treat our own weaknesses like that? that God wants us to receive help from him and from our community. 
When God sees your weaknesses, God wants to help in your weaknesses. Now, the last two are wounds and damages. Um, a wound um, is something that has happened to you a lot of times, if you were to think about your own story, something that happened to you as you were growing up, and it left a mark in you. A wound might have just been a criticism that you got when you were in seventh grade, and you've carried that with you to this day. And now the way you look at yourself, you see it through the lens of what someone has, has said to you. Wounds oftentimes come from those who we look to the most to provide for us, our parents, our caretakers, teachers, coaches, um, friends that we've had. And a lot of us, myself included, have, have carried wounds. Wounds are temporary injuries, something that has been done to us. If your parents were overly harsh to you, that's a wound. If you've been lied to, lied to or cheated on, that is a wound. And the origin of our wounds are past circumstances. And here's what Jesus would say to you in your wounds. I love this one scripture in Luke 10 when Jesus is giving the, Samarit the story about the good Samaritan, and it says, and he went on and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, putting the man on his own donkey and took him to the inn. So when Jesus sees your wounds, Jesus wants to bandage them. He wants to give us healing from the things that have happened to us if we would avail ourselves to him. And the last one are, are damages. And um, uh, damages are, are, are more permanent wounds. Uh, it's, again, something that has happened to us. Uh, and where a wound is temporary, a damage is something that's permanent. Uh, damages impact the way we do relationships. Um, and these things are not healable. Um, certain traumas, um, certain mental health issues are damages that you have and you will carry with you, many people will carry with you uh, for your lifetime. Uh, my anxiety, for example, I remember talking to my therapist one time and I was like, yeah, you know, so like when I get over this and she was like, oh, maybe not a win. Uh, maybe you're going to carry this with you for the rest of your life and you're going to learn how to manage it. Now, the emotions associated with our damages, the things that have happened to us are, are pain and a hopelessness. That is the essence of what a damage does to us. It, it renders us hopeless if we do not invite God to be a part of our story. If we invite God to be a part of our story, if we season the gospel in our life, we will see that God encourages, builds up, that there is a special type of strength reserved for people who, are, who have been damaged. I was talking to a friend this past week, and I was thinking about this this whole week. I have never met someone that I would call a saint. Like this person is a saint that has not been really, really damaged and has learned to hold on to God's hand through some very crushing times. I've never met anybody who I've said, this person is a saint. This person has been with God, who hasn't experienced real wounds or and certainly in some cases also some, some damages. One of my favorite scriptures in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, for when we are weak, then we are strong. There is a certain strength available to you when you discover that you have the damages, but he has the power. And the reason it gives us a certain type of special strength is because when you have been damaged, when you have been wounded, you no longer look to yourself to be the origin of strength. And you turn to God instead. And there you find a real power. And so I want us to be looking at, back in the scripture, how the gospel can complete our story, whether it's with our, um, through our sins, our weaknesses, our wounds, our damages, and um, to turn back to the story in uh, this, the account in Galatians. 
So a gospel story for your life is different. It does not start with your sins, your weaknesses, your wounds, and your damages. It starts with God. So Paul talks about this in Galatians 1, 13 through 16. He says, For you heard about my former way of life. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond my many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, and I want you to listen to this part right here, whom, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I can preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul is packing a tremendous amount of theology into this verse. He is saying the story of his life started when he was in his mother's womb and God set him apart. He would go on to live decades of doing things that were contrary to God. And we'll see this in just a second about how he was persecuting God's church. Paul was standing by as people were being stoned for their faith. And Paul is saying the origin, uh, the gospel focus of his story was that God is the originator. God is the source. The source. The story that made people rejoice about Paul was not about his sins, his weaknesses, his wounds, or his damages. It was about a God who intervened in his life because God is the source of your story. And when you start your story with you, you have already failed to tell it in a way that's going to bring him any glory. The story starts with him, and at the, at the risk of doing, uh, um, giving you just a lot of scriptures in a very brief period of time, I want to read over you a couple of scriptures that I hope will solidify this better than I can say it on my own. John 6 and 44 says this, no one, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him or her, and I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus takes away any credit that you might take for yourself to come to God. God is the originator. Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God who is working in you, listen to this, both to will, what does it mean to will, to desire, to have the appetite for, to want to do. It is God working in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. It's not you. It's not your holiness. It's not your devotion. It's not your willpower. It is God working in you because God is the originator. Ephesians 2 and 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Hebrews 12 and 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of your faith. God is the originator with your story. Now, Here's why this is so, so, so important in your life. Because where your hope comes from will determine when it runs out. The source of your hope will determine when your hope runs out. If the source of your hope is you, your hope will run out when you are not doing a good enough job. If the source of your hope is God, your hope will never run out. Because he is the source of our life. Number two, one thing we see from the story of Paul that made people give God glory is that God is powerful. God is powerful. I love the way Paul talks about his life in verses 13 and 14. He says, for you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. He says, I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. And he, then he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because why? 
because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. So what Paul is describing is how deeply entrenched his life was in a life against Jesus. He is saying, my contemporaries were against it, and I was extremely more zealous than they were. So what we see in the story of Paul, and something that I hope you take to heart, is this. It does not matter how deeply entrenched you are in anything, God is powerful. It doesn't matter how deeply entrenched and how, how hopeless you may feel about the prospects of your life to live victoriously, to, to grow. God is powerful. I've seen this happen over and over and over again. You know, one of the joys of pastoring this church uh, for the last nine years is that I have seen stories. I've seen the growth. I've seen the stories where, to be perfectly honest, I, I would have certain phone calls or and I would go home and I would just be so discouraged. I'm like, Lord, ain't no way. There's no way this is going to change. And I've seen those stories change. I've seen those stories change. And I, listen, for who this is for, don't ever lose sight of God's power. Here's why this is so important for you. Unless we focus on God's power, we will always dwell on our inability and I have never heard of anybody who has grown in their life, who has lived a beautiful story, who was always focused on their own inability. So today, I give you permission. I give you a command to talk to yourself differently and to avert your eyes away from your inability into God who is all-powerful. Now, the last thing I want us to, to look at that we see so beautifully in Paul's story is that God is patient. God is patient. So Paul, who's really admitting and confessing that he has lived a life that was completely contrary to the, to the will of God for his life. If you were to read through Acts 9, you'll see the story of Paul, um, where Paul is converted, and um, he has this, this meeting with Jesus, and his life truly does change. And Paul, here's how he describes it in 1 Timothy 15 and 16. For those of you who are wondering whether or not God is patient with you, I want you to read these words about Paul's life. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This saying is worth full acceptance, not partial acceptance in your life, full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. And here's why he says he received mercy. And here's why the church was praising God. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Here's what Paul is saying. is a saying that he wants you to take to the bank. It is worth full acceptance. Jesus Christ is extraordinarily patient. Most of us judge God's patience by our level of patience. We say to ourselves, I would have got tired of me by now, so I know God is tired of me by now. You are not God. He is not like you. Do not drag him down to your level or to the level of someone else that you've dealt with. God is extraordinarily patient. And what if you believed that God was the source of your story? What if you lived like and believe that God was powerful? And what if you believed in the gospel that God was patient with you? 
that he wasn't judging you, that he wasn't looking to condemn you, but Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners of whom we are among them and who Paul was chief. So this has really important implications. We're going to pray in just a second. To the people who are suffering right now, going through difficult seasons of life, if it's true that God is patient, then it means that the circumstances of your life are not because God is out to get you. This is not payback. To those of you who are self-loathing, if it's true that God is truly patient with you and he has extraordinary patience, then it means that God is not through with you yet. You know, growing up, Shadow Baptist Church, the men's choir, the men's quartet choir would sing the song, please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your extraordinary patience. We pray that the story of our life would go down differently in our own heads and minds and hearts, and that we would be able to turn our eyes away from us to you. Lord, would you be with us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.